This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets. Where, on sale through the end of the month, uh, you're going to find the first of the season, fresh and wild Alaskan halibut. You can save $7 a pound there and get some to have fresh and then maybe freeze a little for later on. Also, I'm looking on their website at Bunches of Asparagus. You're going to save $2 a pound on that. And, uh, of course, recipes are are always available on Zupan, so you can put those two together and make poached halibut and lemon and as- with the lemon and asparagus and find the recipe at Zupans.com. Again, this is what we've been talking about for some time, these great deals on great uh, food items, and then, hey, maybe you don't know what to do with them. Zupans can help you out. And something else that's in store is uh, Chow Italia right now going on at Zupans. Specials on a lot of imported Italian products. Three locations to serve you, McAdam, West Burnside, and Lake Oswego, and information always available where, Chris? Zupans.com. All right, here it is. Time once again. It's Portland's Food Scene Podcast. It's right at the fork with your host, Chris Angelus from Portland Food Adventures. And I'm Court Johnson from uh, Portland Radio, kink.fm. Hello, Court. Well, you're also Court Johnson from right at the fork. Sure. Sure. In fact, I'm, I'm trying to think here because I, I, you know, I've, I was at kink and then I left kink for a while and went to a different radio station and then I went back to kink. So I've technically been more consistent with right at the fork. I'm just going to start saying that, Chris. I think that's good. Just say yeah. you're proud to be the um, co-host. We have to get you back in the co-host seat somehow, as sure. opposed to the uh, the engineer, which is first and foremost what you've been doing. But also, you're you're. I does this sound okay to call you the sidekick or the announcer? The announcer. Uh, Sure. Yeah, I'm something because I'm not a true co-host. Because uh, just the way things have kind of sh- shake shaken out. Um, as I am not around for most of the interviews. However, I think for today's uh, classic episode that we're going to do, I think I, I believe I was in the studio, uh, which I don't know how much you'll hear me, but, um, but yeah. So yeah, I don't think I'm a true co-host, but I'll take co-host. I'll take that title. Well, that's my objective to get you back to true co-host because I think it'd be good to have a second perspective on interviews. That doesn't mean we're going to go there, but what we can say, I believe, is that you will be picking up the slack. No, that's not a good way to put it. It's not slack. Sure. So you will be taking the seat for a little while. I'm going to take a little bit of a hiatus. I have a little traveling to do. And uh, you're going to be booking guests and interviewing them. And I'm excited about that. I can't wait to hear you uh, you do this because you are the professional. Of the two of us, you are the professional. So I've, I've said this on the podcast before, Chris. I'm a, pod, I'm a professional only because I get paid for it. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm pretty excited to uh, fill in the, the Chris Angelus shoes for, for just a little bit. And uh, I've, I've, I've got some uh, guests already lined up that I'm, I'm pretty excited about. Oh, fantastic. Uh, can you preview them or do you not want to say that? Cause we don't like to do that until we actually do the interviews because yeah. if something happens, then all of a sudden we've got egg on our face and you have to, you have to publish a correction. Right. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I will. Yeah. Until I actually have one of these in the cans, I won't tease too much, but um, I, uh, yeah, I don't even think I can say anything more than that, but I've got, <laughs> I, I'm going to, I'm going to zig a little bit. It's still going to be food related, but I, I don't think people will necessarily see this one coming. I'll leave it at that, and then that could mean anything. Ooh, a big tease. Yeah. Call your friends, tell them to subscribe to Right at the Fork, and suggest every episode to their yeah. friends, but it's particularly when court takes over. Right. And then I'll get used to loving you, and then I'll come back and disappoint everybody. Yeah. And uh, and then they'll have to start all all over again. So. I don't necessarily agree with that, but hey, let's let's see if that happens. <laughs> I'll work I'll work towards that goal. Sure, right. right. I'm going to work towards mass mass disappointment. Right. So, there we go. Uh, <laughs> no, but I'm looking forward to that. And we haven't done that. We've been doing this podcast a long time, and the only time we've ever had 
um, guest hosts are during Women's Month, which we didn't do this year, um, but we've done it in the past, and those have always been interesting episodes. It's how we found Joy Church, who's not doing, all of a sudden, if anybody's looking for the Joy of Drinking podcast, that kind of slowed down a little bit, but we may have that back at some point. We will see. She's she's um, run into the same issues that we have experienced, Chris, which is, you know, just the this the the scheduling conflicts that you might have with uh, getting guests and uh, it can be well, difficult at times. Here's the irony of all of that is that we used to obviously for years record this in the studio and then so we had to not had to, but we invited guests to come be interviewed in the studio in Portland, which meant that they had to leave wherever they were and come in and do the interview. And it was uh, an hour and a half, two hours out of their day with parking and all that stuff. Now we're doing it remotely. And so people can log on with their laptop or whatever. And it seems harder to get guests. It's, it's a strange thing. But I think everybody is, um, I'll tell you why that is. Now that I'm talking about it, I think everybody is stretched. Uh, you know, finding help is hard. So I think a lot of our the people that we normally would interview are on the line now or just they're really busy. Not everybody, but I have found it more difficult to book guests this year than ever before. And we've been doing this a long time. So yeah. um, anyway, uh, and also I think, you know, you've got new, new, a lot of new people in the mix and i think i have to better keep up with that i tend to know the people i used to know before the pandemic and uh what we experienced today going back and looking for classic episodes and uh a lot a lot of our archives are no longer i I won't say no longer relevant but they're not in town uh or they don't have restaurants anymore so they're kind of hard to run as uh classic episodes that's right. Yeah, you know, that, that was that was quite literally what it was. It's like, oh, that that restaurant's not here anymore. This person has moved away. This person closed down that restaurant and has opened up this restaurant. So yeah, it's definitely a different landscape. Yeah, and so it's a little more challenging. Um, but in the meantime, we have other pursuits. Uh, I just wanted to tell everybody we have still have room to our on our tr- incredible trip to Western Sicily with Austria Ensign and. Um, that's going to be a lot of fun. Palermo, Ediche, uh, Agrigento. We're back to Palermo. Everything in between. And it's an incredible trip with lots of wonderful food, wine, uh, lots of culture. And uh, that is September 16th. And just give me a call. We have room for that trip. Um and also, I we sold out the trip to Ringside on the Snake River, which we're doing for the second year in a row with Chef Jonathan Gill. No, it's not to Ringside, with Ringside, on the Snake River, with George and Lynette Hauptman. All of those folks you can... Uh, you can Google on our search bar. Not Well, you can search for on our search bar at rightatthefork.com and hear Jonathan Gill and George and Lynette Hauptman. Great interviews. Um, but um, also, we have a few with Leif Gildersleeve, and we have a trip with him on July 17th on the Snake River. Here's an opportunity to go fishing with a master who grew up on rivers and fishing. And, uh, you know, we went with him last year, and he is a fishing beast. And he's a lot of fun, and it's a great trip. And we've got uh, just a few spots left. That will for sure sold out as it did la- sell out as it did last year. And um, so uh, go to PortlandFoodAdventures.com, look up the trip with Leif Gildersleeve of Flying Fish. He's also bringing his chef, uh, Eric Edmonds, with us uh, on the trip. And um, it's great. The food is fantastic. The Just the relaxation factor is incredible on that river. It's the most beautiful river, I think, in the state. And you got four days to chill out off the grid and uh, enjoy that. So that's at PortlandFoodAdventures.com. You look on the Trips tab, pull that down. You'll see Leaf Gildersleeve of Flying Fish and check out that trip. And then call me. My number is there. And also, or email me um, and uh, get yourself booked on that trip. But beforehand, we thought you'd like to hear Leaf. 
Don't we love Leaf Court? He's the best. We, we, do, we do love Leaf. He's uh, just super chill and just the guy just knows his stuff. Like uh, we've had him on the podcast, what, we counted three different times and uh, just uh, just a wealth of knowledge and uh, apparently awesome to hang out with Riverside. Yes. Well, he's also, to me, one of the most positive individuals I know. And my being a little bit of an East Coast cynic, uh, the contrast between the two of us on a river is interesting. Although the nice part about that is I believe that by the second day, the first day even, he wore off on me more than I will ever wear off on him. And so I think I became um, all in and very, it was just, a, it's just a fun trip. He's just a great guy. Um, I've gotten to know him better since this interview. And we have two other interviews, if you'd like, um, with Leaf. Uh, so the one we're doing is is the first we did with him, correct, Court? 148? That's right. The original, yeah, from uh, January of 2018, 148. And for whatever reason, we, we liked our eights when it came to, to Leaf because we had him back uh, uh, the following year in episode 188, and then again, 248. So three- right. 248 was the most recent. Yes. And it was pre-pandemic. He opened his restaurant the week, Flying Fish, the week that uh, the pandemic hit or a week before. That's right. And then we did a little update with him afterwards to talk about how things are going. Well, now he's firmly established over there on Burnside. There are, um, I dare say, because it's dangerous to say, but it's very popular and you need to get there early in the dining hour. Let's put it that way. Um, for uh, To eat, to dine with them. But they also have a f- incredible fish market with, you know, Leaf is... is carrying the banner of sustainability and um, knows, you said before, he knows his stuff. Well, he knows it with regard to history of all the species and um, what's best for uh, everybody, not only to enjoy from a delicious standpoint, but from a sustainability standpoint. So uh, you'll hear that there too, but we invite you to go back and listen in the archives, as you said, 148, 188, and 248 you don't need to look for 148 because we've done that for you it's right here right now leaf gildersleeve flying fish right at the fork is brought to you by zupan's markets unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to local baked goods fresh flowers and an extensive craft beer selection step into zupan's and be inspired for your next meal Food-loving customers, as well as local chefs, know that Zupans is the place to find the very best Northwest Bounty in Portland, West Burnside, Southwest McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family-owned for over 40 years. Zupans Markets. And by Portland Food Adventures. Join our host, Chris Angelis, and his colleague, Austri Enzyme, next September for a wildly delicious adventure through Western Sicily. Palermo, Marsala, and lots in between. Book now to make sure you don't miss the best of Sicily. Since 2015, PFA has been taking Portlanders on incredible journeys with Portland chefs and artisans to Europe and beyond. Check out the trips tab at portlandfoodadventures.com for Sicily, Spain, and more. Or contact Chris through the website right now while you're listening to the podcast. Cool. That's usually my seat. (laughs) I've never sat here before. Five years. Does it feel different? Yeah. Yeah. I feel a little more in charge. Maybe I should do this. No, I can't. (laughs) Because he's normally there. Court's usually here. He had to step out. So, um, but no, that's usually where I'm sitting. Anyway. Yeah. Where, you know, where I expected to sit when I moved to Portland was in front of a lot of seafood. <laughs> yes. Right? So I moved from Connecticut. We have pretty good seafood there. Sure. I miss my swordfish. What's left of it. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> what we're going to talk about. But when I got here, Portland isn't really a seafood town. No, it's kind of perceived to be coastal and seafood-ish. Right. Like Seattle would is. But, right. Uh, unfortunately, it really hasn't been established in that way. And I, of course, we're not right on the coast, but neither is Seattle. And my first experience in the Pacific Northwest was in Seattle. And of course, when you go there, you're going to Pike Place Market, and you're you're feeling the ocean, yeah, and the sound, yep. 
but then I got to Portland and it was like salmon and more expensive than it was back east. Yeah. Well, back east it was just farm-raised Atlantic salmon, so a little That's different. All right. <laughs> and then you give me my locks and I'm okay. Yes. So, but anyway, so um and now I'm out on the coast. I spent some time on the coast and I found some great places for seafood, but it's still I don't think you know, I, I don't have, I, I had a fish market when I lived in Guilford, Connecticut, where it was Jacques Pepin's fish yeah. market. Wow. That's where he went. Yeah. And it was great. Yeah. I, you have a wonderful, you have, you know, you, you have a wonderful market as well. Thank you. But um, that didn't start till a couple of years ago where you are now, and then you had your food cart. Yep. And it's a slightly different vibe than Jacques Pepin's sea- seafood <laughs> store. And it was really nice. So anyway... Um, I wanted to talk seafood. It's great. And it's the one I'm thinking of the environment. It's the one thing that really scares me because, uh, the information that I'm going on that I just touch on here and there is, you know, we may not have seafood uh, for my kids That's right. or their kids. Or we'll just have different kinds of it because we've depleted a lot of the other species if we're not careful. Right. Yep. And I, and I hear, uh, I, I touch on a little bit from some restaurants and so forth and people are into it, but, uh, I'm curious to learn. I'm interested in learning more about it and what, how close, how perilously close we are to losing some of the wonderful bounty that we have now and what the odds are that we're going to be able to sustain that. And you're working on that. You're working, working hard on, on it. That. Yeah, working hard. Uh, you know, it's a, uh, it's a broad topic that deserves so much time and, and there's so many different components and facets of the industry that so many people don't know. I even, being somebody that's been in the industry for my whole life, my family had a fish market growing up as a kid. So I'm a second generation fishmonger and I'm still learning every day. There's still tricky stuff that happens in the industry that I learn about, that I'm more aware about, and then I make sure that my consumers don't get that that happens to them. I provide them with a, a better product that doesn't have the preservatives in it or isn't treated in a certain way or isn't fished in a certain way. Um, but man, there's a lot lot to it. Just like our food industry in this day and age, there's just so much going into it. And we're finally, as consumers, starting to recognize that, you know, maybe we need to ask a few more questions. And and there are a lot of people that aren't asking questions. So there's, there's different subsets of, of diners or eaters, whatever they may be. Some people who don't care. Yep. Other people who other people who do care, but uh, a lot of the the research is something they're not going to do. So, just like the um, the the ocean, there are people like you who are really close to it, who are at the heart of it, who are making sure with knowledge um, how to go about doing these doing what you're talking about, being sustainable. Yep. Um, and then some of us, I, I haven't done enough research. I'm eating a lot of seafood. I'm concerned. Does the tuna, has that, has this been, um, has this been tainted from Fukushima? Sure. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm looking into what are the best seafoods, what were the best products to consume, but we're relying on folks like you. And I haven't, I have, I have to admit, I'm not going into the seafood market to talk to someone like you about my food enough, and I probably should be. Yep, yep. I mean, you know, the, it's first thing, I think as a consumer, we have this perception that asking questions at a restaurant is annoying, and it's kind of a well, pain in the be. butt, yeah. and it is, uh, but, you know, being that this year is the end of Portlandia, I guess that's a, a, a recognition to the to that show alone that they actually did bring a little bit more awareness of, hey, you need to ask questions about where that chicken came from. Mm-hmm. Maybe not as much about what his name was. We don't really care that much about what his name was. Um, but it is important to know where your food's coming from. Uh, on the flip side of that, you know, they kind of make it seem like it's a pain in the butt to ask the questions at the restaurant where I don't necessarily agree with that. I do think that consumers need to pay more attention. They need to ask more questions. If it says herb crusted salmon, they need to ask what kind of salmon that is that's herb crusted. Because if that restaurant and that chef is paying the extra money for a wild king salmon, Chinook salmon, that's a, the top of the tier of, of the salmons, they're paying more money for it. And if they were paying more money for it, they would want to market it as wild king salmon you know, herb crusted king salmon, not just 
herb crusted salmon. So you need to pay attention to the details at the at the on the menu at the restaurant and make sure you're asking the questions and you are being a pain in the butt because if that chef gets that server coming back enough times of the guests asking the questions and asking the questions asking the questions they're going to recognize that it is important. And they're going to need to know before they before the fact, like I need yeah. to find this out so I don't have to keep going back and forth. Yeah. Oh, they know damn well what it is. They just choose to not put it on the menu. Oh, okay. So, so if, if, people, if you're not seeing king salmon, yeah, then it's you, you, it's not yeah. because they're, as you said, they're going to, they're going to want to recognize they're going above and beyond. Yeah. But how then do we check? Other than trusting that if they do say King Salmon, it actually is King Salmon. Well, that's that's a credibility thing that, you know, I feel like most places, if they get asked it enough, that the, they can't really convey enough times from their chef to the server or through the manager and that and keep online about it. Eventually that will come out. So just keep asking the question. And, and Yeah, that's and how you the keep them honest, come. by asking. But, yeah. there, but there's a subset of this food scene in Portland where yeah. people are conscious and they know the chefs, they know who the chef is when they're in a restaurant, and they're much more interested. Then there's this whole world out there of people who aren't really that conscious. That's true. They're paying attention. They're probably never going to ask. Yeah. And, and and to your point about it being a pain in the ass to be asked all the time, there's a lot of false alarms because they're asked about things that, uh, you know, at some point, if you're going to go down the menu and get on each item and you're talking about food allergies and everything, there's only so many, so many questions that can be asked and so much... Uh, labor costs going into it where you can't have someone going back and forth to the kitchen all the time. And, and, and let's face it, a lot of the service staff in Portland or anywhere just isn't, isn't as knowledgeable as you would like them to be, or I would like them to be. Definitely. Definitely. So yeah, I mean, just, you know, one, one step at a time. I, I feel like just, you know, picking a, picking a few, you know, getting down to your top two items that you think you're going to pick off the menu and then ask about them and, and see if that one, or if that one, if you don't get the right answer from that one, then pick the other one. You definitely don't want to ask about all six items because that is a pain in the ass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially if you get two people or four people and you're, yeah. you're doing that whole thing. So, um, how concerned are you as a diner? Do you get out a lot, by the way? You're a busy guy. Do you? And I find a lot of people we interview, they don't get to get out as much as they would like because they're working very hard. Yeah, not as much. I've got two young kids as well, so it's a little mm-hmm. bit more challenging to uh, either have them covered or to take them to places because that's a pain in the butt as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so not as much. I was When I was selling wholesale fish to the different restaurants around, I was getting out more then uh, to visit the chefs that I was selling the fish to and that. But, you know, I still get out. A handful of times uh, every couple months and and visit the the favorites and um, more lunchtime stuff not as many fancy dinners so are you asking those questions every time or do you just kind of know off offhand oh most of it because you're going to the people you know and what they you you know what they might be buying are they not buying from you any longer? You're not selling no, wholesale I'm just restaurants? doing retail now. Okay, you're yeah. just doing retail. You know, I know what's available in the marketplace. So if I see something that, you know, creates a red flag, then I know something's up or I know they're defrosting fish or, you know, which is fine. Defrosted fish can be fine as long as it's done properly and it was a good fish to start with. It's handled properly in that. So, um, you know, overall for Portland, you know, a lot of the restaurants have salmon and halibut and, and they're not as fun uh, with the with the sand dabs and the you know wolf eel and and different more undesirable species which i think is important that the chefs need to continue to expand their horizon and the consumers need to be more open to trying those different dishes as well because you know if we continue to put pressure on only the top four species the bass the salmon the tuna and you know the shrimp mm-hmm. then then those are going to have problems um, and then there's too much pressure too much human pressure too much demand on those uh, specific Fish. Uh, Paul Paul Greenberg wrote a great book a couple years back called Four Fish, and it talks about that. That there's just so much demand on those those four species that we need to broaden our horizon and have more awareness of the more undesirable species. Chefs Collaborative did a trash fish, uh, you know, um, marketing push a couple years back, and that was to bring more awareness to the undesirables. And so that's skate wing, that's wolf eel, that's sand dabs, that's different kinds of sole, English dole, sole, starry sole. You know, different kinds of cod, different stuff. I would think they need to repeat that, though, because I remember that happening. Yeah. I was aware of it, but it's not something, you know, a couple of years later that's top of mind. So yeah. much like uh, you are starting Shuck Portland, 
Yep. And that's going to be, I assume, an annual thing, and that yes. will keep issues with oysters and shellfish top of mind as we go. Trash fish, in my mind, I saw it. I remember Kathy Wims doing yeah, and that doing was the trash fish dinner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was great. So I remember that, which is pretty good for me because my memory is always that good. <laughs> and uh, but there hasn't been anything since. So when when you use words like need, we need to. Mm-hmm. That's one thing. Doing it is another thing. And it's not all on you, but no, I mean, it's hard to get a collective body of people moving in the same direction. So uh, are you taking notes or are you saying I'm, call, I'm gonna, call Kathy or call somebody? <laughs> I'm going to write back down trash fish because, you know, that is a, uh, a good point. But for, you know, bandwidth, you're right. It does take a lot. This, this whole Shuck Portland event that we're putting together is going to be an annual event. It's been four of us that have been organizing it. And oh my gosh, it's all just something for, you know, nonprofit. We're going to raise a bunch of money to benefit uh, wild oyster restoration projects on the Oregon coast. So we're looking to raise money and we're going to seed oyster beds in Neatarts Bay and Yuquina Bay uh, down in Newport. And because we used to have all these oyster shell, oyster populations on the Oregon coast, and then in the early 1900s, they came and just harvested them all. So now there's none. And so that's what we're looking to do is raise money. I mean, there's none. There's, but I can go a lot of places and get raw oysters yeah, at happy hour they're for cultured, a dollar. Yeah, they're cultured oysters. So they're okay. they're aquaculture. So they're farm-raised. Um, really no difference from a wild oyster um, because oysters are bivalves. They're filter feeders. So basically, you lease a plot of ground from the state, and then there's oyster hatcheries that take adult oysters and mix the eggs and the sperm and and make little baby oysters and then once the oyster gets to be a certain size little larvae then you you put them they attach to old oyster shells and then you take those old oyster shells that have the little babies on them and put them out in your plot that you leased from the from the state and then it takes about anywhere from a year to two years for that to grow to market size. And then you go back out and harvest that oyster off of that plot that you lease from the state. So really a cultured oyster in X plot versus the wild oyster that's right next to it. It's the same difference It's being eaten the same wild algae that's in the ocean um, as, as the next one. So they're cultured, but, but really just in a controlled environment, um, a harvestable environment per se. And so uh, what are the effects on that? So as a consumer, you're saying there's not much difference in flavor. This no, is not no, much different. no, they're or, or awesome. Health, or the health aspects are the same. The same. And they're actually net positive for the environment because they're taking nutrients out of the water. Mm-hmm. Whereas as, as humans, we're um, adding so many components and adding so many nutrients to the water. So they're a net positive when it comes to aquaculture or farming fish or anything like that. That's adding nutrients to the water. So so all the shellfish aquaculture is, is a net positive for the environment. So it's really sustainable. Oh, okay. So I long ago saw on PBS, they had a really fascinating um a show yes. on the Oregon Experience, I believe it was. Yes, and we have I have him coming that, to talk at Chuck at the port, at the panel discussion. Oh, cool! Night. Yeah, I want to hear that. Yeah. I want to go to that. I don't think I've signed up for that one. Yeah, that's Tuesday, right. February sixth. Okay, I have to get on that. Yeah, um, I'm on the final. I, I'm going to the uh, the final dinner. Oh, talk a little bit about that. So, as long as we're on that. Tell me, sure. tell, tell us who the chefs are there and what we can expect. That, so that's the grand finale. What's that called? Yeah. The Ocean Pacific yep. Ocean? Yep. yep, Pacific Ocean dinner. Right. Um, that's going to be a, a hoot. We've got Vitaly Paley, which is Who's he? renowned uh, chef, uh, <laughs> restaurant owner here in Portland for 20 years. And uh, one of his head chefs, Matt, um, at a, a couple of his restaurants, he's got his main guys heading up the program for, uh, for the evening there. There's going to be um, a couple other chefs and shellfish producers involved along with Maylin from Olympia Oyster Bar, myself, Leaf from Flying Fish Company. Um, and and then uh, we're going to be doing a couple of the courses as well through our prospective restaurants. And um, yeah, it's, we're going to have, um, oh, uh, Marco there from Chelsea Shellfish. Uh, um, that's an oyster grower up in um, Shelton, uh, Olympia uh, as well. And they're going to do a couple of the dishes. So it's going to be a wonderful evening uh, pairing wine and spirits and beer along with it as well. We've got four different breweries in the this week or the, the Shuck week that are brewing oyster beers uh, to go oh, along cool. with, with these events. So I didn't know that. Yeah. So that's a little bonus to yeah. having got going already. Yep. Yeah. And that's it's at the Nightwood. The Nightwood, yeah, new new gig with uh, Camus Davis's um, new new venue, mm-hmm. which is going to be exciting to to. to which got in. funded, by the way. Got, it yes. hit the Kickstarter funding. Yeah, they're, they're, I supported it. What about you? Um, did I? <laughs> Thanks for putting me. <laughs> oh. Well, no, I've supported. I don't remember if I did or not. Anyway, I'll tell you this. 
this is going to make me sound terrible. I've had I've had n- not so great experiences with with uh, Kickstarters. Yeah, with supporting people, and and one one of the things that I, I don't want to get into this too far, but it's okay. I mean, I supported a uh, property once that was being yeah. built, and then could never stay there. Yeah, and uh, and then I found also. Um, I supported. I'll, I'll say it. I'll su- I supported a restaurant out in Manzanita, mm-hmm. and got attitude from her afterwards. Yeah. So, I'm at the point with Kickstarters where yeah. I, I have my other ways of supporting businesses. Totally. Podcast here, getting the word out. What we're do this for Shuck, and I'm, I'm. I've learned to feel okay about that. That does not mean that I'll never support another Kickstarter again. But I think twice when I'm like late at night at 11 o'clock at night and say, okay, I'm going to lay 200 bucks into this. I'm not, you know, no, yeah. I'm not that flush with cash to be throwing it out there. I know I, I put one into a restaurant, uh, 400 bucks a few years ago. Ne- they stopped the program uh. that my pro or my, my reward has. Yep. And I used it. So I tell you, I did a Kickstarter for flying fish when I started it. I supported that. that. You did. Thank and you. I came to your right event. No. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I will tell you from the, from the back end side, I certainly don't tell businesses or friends that are thinking about doing it, that it's all roses. Cause it was a pain in the ass. Yeah. It right. was, it was super challenging. And there's and, a lot of fulfillment there. I, oh, I mean, tons. I still have my hat. That's why I know yeah. I did it. Right. I wouldn't <laughs> get a hat and I came to that event wherever that was on division yeah right? yeah, yeah somewhere down there yep yeah that was uh, fun yeah that was great so yeah. anyway there's my little, support my Appreciate pleasure it. and yeah. i'm glad that, that i'm glad that that came up because <laughs> i have supported kickstarters it's just lately i'm a little sour on it it's okay. so yeah. the whole thing um but where were we oh you know you were going to talk about the pbs um, pot, um oh i want to okay. know so where do we have so Washington and Oregon, who has better oysters? Well, you know, or Washington does have better, well, better oysters. I guess that's a subjective um, question. More coveted as, oysters, right? Um, I, I would say Washington. Um, you know, they're they're more renowned for their oysters. You know, two things. Uh, or Washington has better protected bays, so it's a more like a lake. You know, the whole Puget Sound, you can grow oysters m- more efficiently. Uh, we only have the handful of protected bays, Neetarts Bay, Yaquina Bay, um, you know, these different bays that are up and down the Oregon coast, um, not quite as much territory to grow, but also the state of Oregon has done a terrible job investing and supporting aquaculture in Oregon. We're way behind the eight ball when it comes to aquaculture compared to Washington produces like 90% compared to our 10%. Uh, Idaho produces 80% of the nation's rainbow trout. Mm-hmm. Uh, California has a big aquaculture industry. Uh, we have almost none, almost non-existent, except for the shellfish, the few oyster farms there are here. And, and crab. So, I mean, well, that's all wild. That's wild harvested. Oh, okay. That's not aquaculture. That's not farm-raised um, mariculture. Um, I studied aquaculture in college, so I, I I've Where'd worked you go to in, school? down in a place in, called Harbor Branch Oceanographic in Fort Pierce, Florida. Oh. Yeah, so I, I, I studied down there, worked in different shrimp farms and ornamental aquaculture for clownfish and that sort of thing. And, and it is just, it's an amazing industry. Unfortunately, the salmon industry, the Atlantic salmon industry commodity, you know, the non-native species growing these non-native species out in our you know, Puget Sound and, and up in, into Canada and stuff. And like this summer when right after the eclipse, the net pen got bro- broke and the release 200,000 non-native Atlantic salmon into the waterways that are competing now with our wild five amazing iconic species. I totally disagree with that. And I think that there's got to be... Oh, that was a planned thing? No, the company didn't do a good enough job maintaining their net pens out there in the Puget Sound, North Puget Sound, and they broke open and all these fish got out. But they were non-native and they're farm-raised and they're just getting disease into the water and they're just absolutely not good. It's just, you know, it's commodity-produced farm-raised Atlantic salmon, bad, bad, bad. It's like McDonald's beef. You just, it's not good. And and so those are things that I, I'm fighting and I, I want to stick up for for aquaculture because there is good aquaculture that can be done more sustainably. And But there's a lot of these companies that are just doing it for the money. They're packing them in there. They're feeding them genetically modified corn feed, um, just not good stuff. And what's the outlook with the current political climate with that? Uh, it doesn't seem. It doesn't seem to me. I'm, you got states fighting federal. Um, generally speaking, I don't know the specifics about 
aquaculture, but how how does it how does it look right now? You know, they're not doing much. Even after that whole release and with uh, all this all these issues that they've had with that, there's just really really challenging. Um, they're really not doing a lot about it. It's it's hard to go backwards on after they've already permitted these places to invest the millions of dollars into these farms. But I think moving forward, we need to just firm up and make sure the consumers are aware of what's going on and then that way for any new permitting we don't allow that to happen uh, there's so many so many issues with 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 aquaculture and with policy uh, up in Canada they also there's this uh, investigative reporter that went down with a scuba gear and an underwater camera and videotaped in one of these Atlantic salmon farms um, the discharge where they're processing the fish the discharge of the blood water that they're releasing from canada just straight into the waterway without treating it or anything it's these feces and blood and 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 back and little worms parasites and stuff right into the water column and comes to show or it comes to turn out that canada just allows sewage to just be discharged into the water column without sewage treatment plants Wow. Convention, my conventional wisdom would make me think Canada would be more on top of it than that. I was blown away when I heard this. So, it, but thanks the, to this, and does that come down our way? Do we have to? Do we have to eat that basically? shit? Yeah, eat that shit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, basically, I mean, this is this is Vancouver and Vancouver Island, and that's just on the other side of the Strait de Juan de Fuca, which is on the mouth of the Puget Sound. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's water that yeah, absolutely interchanges with with Puget Sound water and the you know Hood Canal and all that so absolutely that is it is um, something that we need to as well find ways to put pressure on them and thanks to this investigative reporter it, it did bring a lot more awareness and I do know that the government and the pressure that they're getting is making things change but it's not until somebody that raises the red flag on something like that that they actually change it so it's the same with the food industry as soon as we keep asking the questions, and discovering and exploring what's going on in the industry and what they're putting in our food and what kind of preservatives they're putting in our food, then they're going to be like, oh, wow, they noticed. We better stop doing that. And so we got to continue to be pain in the butts. We got to ask the questions. We got to make sure that we're recognizing, we're seeing, and we're making the choices. We're voting with our dollars with who we're choosing to support, what species we're buying in the grocery store, making sure that it's not product of China. Uh, You know, here in America, we import 90% of the fish that we consume in America is imported. So we have. And how much of that is from somewhere like China that doesn't have the environmental? I would assume don't. They don't have the environmental no. uh, regulations that no. we would like to have in place for the Hell food no, they we don't. eat. Yeah, so 90% of the fish that we consume in America is coming from abroad, imported. And how long has that been? So 80% of I, that is from China. So when I grew up, seafood wasn't a big part of our diet, right? Yep. That's, that, which is longer ago than you care to know. <laughs> but seafood, was not, it was not a big thing growing up. And now, you know, kids are exposed to sushi, Early on, I mean, especially with the yeah, the <laughs> sushi track restaurants and all, so oysters. They're eating oysters these days. Yeah, something I never tomorrow. would yeah. have. You know, it wasn't until my late thirties or early forties where I just even and I love oysters where I learned to appreciate them. Yep. You know, going to a restaurant and said, "Yeah, give me six of those on the half shell." Yep, and then. Uh, you know, in repeating that experience, eventually along the way, you get one bad one and it turns you off for a while. Definitely. So, but I haven't had, you know, I don't get bad oysters up here when I order them. And I think I eat a decent quantity of them over a period of time. Is there a difference between what I, the, what I would get on the East coast and here in terms of why did it, was it the restaurant? Was that why I got a bad oyster once in a while? You know, I, <clears throat> I, I, I'm, I'm not quite sure. I, I do know the East Coast has more issues with like red tide and and more, um, you know, d- different stuff that happens with water quality that is that they get shut down more from um, from shellfish collection and uh, shellfish harvesting and that. So I do believe that there are some different components to the East Coast that affect the quality of them. Um, yeah, I just wonder because I got bad ones there and I don't recall having some you know out of a dozen oysters having one or two bad ones because that can ruin the experience totally chris we're gonna pause here a moment to talk about one of our favorite places to eat here in portland a uh, portland institution as it were ringside steakhouse yeah and uh 78 years i understand now man it was the 75th 
pre-pandemic, and now, boy, that, that time went fast. 78 years. We should cover the necessary particulars about what they're doing now. They're offering indoor dining and uh, heated and covered outdoor dining, and they're also doing to-go, which I want to talk about in a second, but also they're doing seating in the bar as though it was the restaurant. So that beautiful bar that they just renovated a few years ago is now kind of part of the dining room, but it's it's got a cool vibe to it. So um, so all sorts of the hours are uh, 4 to 9 on weekends or 4 to 9.30 on Saturday, actually. 4.30 to 9.30 on Friday, 5 to 9 Wednesday and Thursday. So they're closed now on Monday and Tuesday. Although if you check in, sometimes they will be open on Tuesday. Um, and also if you call an hour and a half, ahead you can get to go your food to go i just did a party with 10 people at my house ringside provided all the food and it was spectacular we had new york strip boneless new york strip steaks which were easy for me to do on the grill and then slice up the mashed potatoes all sous vide were fantastic we got ingredients for salad hazelnuts two types of dressing green beans, uh, and oh, lobster tails as well. And uh, it was really easy to do. And also for dessert, very simple, some of the best toffee you're ever going to have. You just throw that on a plate and it's all good. So we were looking for something that was less work intensive and ringside provided it. It's very nice. So whether it be for a special occasion or a special occasion happening at your place, Ringside Steakhouse has you covered. Yeah, and you can find them on Open Table or at ringsidesteakhouse.com for reservations, or you can call them at 503-223-1513. That's 223-1513 for reservations and uh, to order something to go. I want to get back to that, that PBS show. Yes. Because long ago, this was just... Oysters were all over the place, yep. and it was a big industry for the Pacific Northwest, yep. especially Washington. Yep. But then Oregon wanted, if I recall, Oregon wanted to compete and did a lot, put a lot of things in place to make that happen. And then, refresh my memory, what happened? We just over-harvested them. We, we went in and the when was early that? 1900s, and they just, oh, that they long just ago. harvested the hell out of them. They had the barges there, and they just loaded them up on there. And then oysters are broadcast spawners. So they basically, um, in the summertime, it's why typically people don't eat as many oysters in the summer, June, July, August. The water is warmer. They spawn. They they get these, they get kind of milky because um, they get the gametes, um, the uh, sperm and eggs, basically. And when the moon and the temperature and all everything aligns, then all the oysters at once um, spit that um, gametes out into the water column. And the eggs and the sperm connect in the water column and create this little larvae that swims around for a couple weeks. And then after a couple weeks, it it drops to the bottom and sets on a oyster shell or on a rock or on a pillar or something like that. And it stays there for the rest of its life and grows. Well, it's a if you don't have enough oysters broadcasting together, then all of them get wiped out because there's just not enough. It's, it's a volume deal. There's millions and billions and billions that need to, of eggs and sperm that need to happen in the water column for that to work. So once, they, once it starts over-harvesting too many of them, then they all just disappear because there's not enough to reproduce to, to create that broadcast spawning effect. Is there ever a chance that... There's no chance that it would ever get back to that. Well, so that's actually what we're doing for Shuck Portland is we are raising money to benefit oyster restoration projects on the Oregon coast. So uh, over the years in the future, we're going to also maybe add Wilpa Bay to that and, and add, you know, Coos Bay and different bays as well up and down the coast. For this year, we're going to start with Webbs, which is the uh, wetlands in the Neatarts Bay, an organization, a nonprofit organization there. And then we're also going to work with Wetlands Conservancy uh, down in um, Yuquina Bay and with the Siletz Indian Tribe and um, Oregon Oyster Company. They're doing some restoration projects down there. So those are areas that used to have the native Olympia oyster that grew in those bays. And what we're going to do is we're going to collect all the oyster shells we're going to contract with the hatcheries where they're already producing oyster larvae. And then we're going to take the oyster shells, 
put them in the tanks where there's oyster larvae and seed those oyster shells with the native oyster, the Olympia oyster. It's a unique little button oyster and really metallic-y, great flavor, a kind of a coppery flavor, um, a lot of, lot of punch for the size. We're going to seed those oyster shells with Olympia oysters, and then we're going to put those oyster shells out in the bays, out in these selected bays through these programs that we're working with, and, and start to rebuild these oyster populations, not for harvesting in the future, just to have oyster populations because it helps to the wetlands and everything for salmon larvae. And, and it's all part of the, the whole cycle of wetlands to have oysters there. They're filter feeders. They clean the water. Um, the, they create habitat for small fish and, and all the little copepods and the things that live in the ocean. So that's actually what the goal of Shuck Portland is, is that we're going to restore wild oyster populations on the Oregon coast. And how did this come up? What was the genesis of, uh, how did the first conversation take you place? You know, I, I've had it in my mind for a while, and I reached out to Malin from Olympia Oyster Bar, and, and she had it in, in her mind as well. So we got together and joined forces, brought in uh, Jarrett from Tornant, who's a caterer and restaurant here in town, and then um, Natalia um, Toral, who is an event planner, um, she throws parties. So she is the organizer for us, uh, for a bunch of us entrepreneurs that want to blast off ideas. And then she's the one that actually organizes it and follows through with those ideas. So we've got a great team of four of us that are putting it together. And, and, and then we've got our beneficiaries of the, like I mentioned, the Wetlands Conservancy and the, and the webs. Um, so that's where the money's going to be going. And we're throwing some launch parties. We're doing educational classes during the week. We're doing a panel discussion down at EcoTrust during the week. We're doing uh, the big um, fancy dinner with Vitaly Paley and such on, on Friday. And some other meals. And then some, and some others. as I understand it, some restaurants around Portland are just going to participate by doing some special things. Yep. So, and if you go to, it's shuckportland.org. Dot org, Correct? Yep. yep. Uh, so if you go there, you can see all... Yeah, participating restaurants will also collect their oyster shells in the week. They're going to donate a percentage of the proceeds to the <clears throat> Shuck Portland organization. Um, and then uh, you can go do little oyster crawls around town and go to the different restaurants that are offering different specials that have to do with Shuck Portland. So trying to bring awareness to the city, trying to get as many people involved, all for the benefit of oysters on the Oregon coast. Maybe you and Natalia and, and Eric Russ uh, from Pono, because they're, yeah. they're friends. They're doing a fried chicken crawl for the podcast. They're going to oh, do wow. a little crawl and, and, and just narrate it as they go. Yeah. Maybe you can do an oyster crawl, too, and talk about some of the different we, oysters around. That would be great. Yes. And you know Natalia. You don't have to. You can just put that together. Yes. So anytime during the year, we, just, we usually run one of those, uh, we call them sound bites. Sweet. Where we feature something fun. We did a, yeah. I did one with her where we did, uh, and you can go back and look, it was last year, earlier last year, uh, tartars, steak tartars. Yeah. Uh, well, it was more than steak tartars. But, yeah. So do that. So, um, what was, did, and you grew up around here? No, I grew up in Northern Idaho in Sandpoint, Idaho. My dad originally moved from Seattle uh, to inland to Sandpoint, which is only about 350 um, nautical miles. Well, nautical miles. Um, as a crow flies miles. Yeah, if we could um, all fly like a crow. Yeah, well, so the reason I say fly is because he used to fly, be a flight instructor for little Cessna planes. So he'd mm -hmm. fly back and forth from Sandpoint, Sandpoint to Seattle all the time. So he'd pick up a box of fish in Seattle, bring it back to Sandpoint, and then sell it in Sandpoint because inland you don't have good seafood there. So that, that was the 1979, the year before I was born, that they started Flying Fish Company in my hometown. So I grew up as a kid packaging fish and selling fish in, our, in my hometown. Just a part-time family business, uh, one day a week to start, and then it ended up being two days a week. So just part-time. And then um, my dad recently retired about four years ago and sold the business to another set of folks um, that own it now. How big was it now at this point in time? Oh, same deal. Always just part-time. Oh, just Wednesdays a part-time thing. Fridays. Yep, yep. And you started your food cart. Sim similarly, right? It was not, you, you know, yes. it wasn't the big, you didn't go get a big investment. No. Open up Pike's Place Market. No. So, so during the recession, I got laid off my kind of real estate, <clears throat> real estate job out in Utah is where I was living. And 
when I got out of fish stuff, I was ski bumming for several years out there. Um, got laid off my full-time job. Couldn't really find other work. This is 2008 and started flying fish company out there. I started selling fish at the farmer's markets in Utah. That lasted for about a year and a half. I had my daughter out there and then we decided we didn't want to raise her in Utah. So we moved it on out here. I wish we had court here right now because he's from Utah and he yeah, moved I, here also. So I saw have, that 801 number, yeah. You'd have that in common, but yeah. I'll speak for her court and saying that he's really glad he made that move. I assume yeah. you are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, it was challenging running the fish business out there. It was definitely not received yeah, as well as it was here. Yeah. They wanted trout and didn't yeah, really and understand, understand scallops that. and halibut as much. In Park City, it was different, um, but but in, in outside of Park City in Heber is where I had the truck set up and that was not... There was a, a few f- set of folks that came in from outside of that area that lived there that all knew better seafood than that, but the rest of the people just wasn't as important. So moved here about eight years ago now and started selling uh, in this big step van that I shipped here from Utah. And I parked that over in, in the, in a cart pot across from Pock Pock. And that was where it started. I was there for the first six or nine months. And then Kruger, Don Kruger over at Kruger's produce um, came over and invited me down to his spot at 23rd and Hawthorne. So <clears throat> it wasn't really space for me to put my truck at 23rd and Hawthorne. So I decided to build out that little shack on the corner. So I had that a little 11 by 16 shack for five years there at Kruger's, next to Kruger's Produce and Grand Central Bakery right across from Jam. So that was a nice chapter. I built out the shipping container to be in my commercial kitchen. I was producing my smoked salmon out of it. It was just a wonderful, had a lot of character. People, customers really enjoyed coming in there. You know, it wasn't with a boat behind it and, and that, but we're in Portland. We're not next to the ocean. So mm-hmm. um, the people and so how did the character. You, what was sourcing like? Did you have to take a lot of time to go out to the coast Yeah, on an ongoing basis, like weekly? Or how did you get, how did, how did you procure your product to sell yeah so most of the, it's kind of how i work is i i don't i don't spend a lot of time or labor um, paying somebody else to actually drive and pick up product I, I i go out and build the relationships and then figure out ways to get the product shipped to me so i work with fishermen in alaska in washington and here on the oregon coast actually even down into california and I work on those relationships, build them up, figure out the logistics on how to get it in and being small local fishermen you and same with the oysters that I get you know some guys come in once a week some guys don't have a schedule when they come in so they just come in when they come in so you got to have dozens and dozens of them so that you put the pieces together and hopefully you get enough product for the week and and outside of that you just fill the rest of the voids with the seafood wholesalers that are here in town or up in Washington and again they ship product in on on trucks every day so so you you whenever possible i source directly from fishermen and from oyster producers and then outside of that i just fill the gaps with the seafood wholesalers and um you know producers would you would you say that you're the most knowledgeable fishmonger in portland absolutely with confidence with confidence okay yeah that's so so What's and in utah you must have had a little supply and demand problem fish has to fish has to move it had to you fly into have, Salt Lake. Yeah. And that's expensive. That's expensive. Yeah. But did you have any product left over that, you know, did you have a lot of waste? You know, so what I do with my waste, and, and this is one of the unique things of my business model, is I create my smoked salmon or other smoked products. Now that I've got the oyster bar, I can create, you know, I make, I put any white fish that's left over into the chipinos or, or that sort of, or ceviche. So basically, any of the reds, any of the salmons or scallops or black cod, anything like that, I, I have it in my case for a couple days. Um, I only have fresh fish in my case, so I don't defrost fish to put in my fresh case. What's, what's in my case is fresh, which means it's never been frozen. It's never been hard. Grocery stores just take frozen product and defrost it, and then they put it in their case. But that's not fresh fish. That's just defrosted fish. Mm-hmm. So that's the first difference is my fish is fresh, which means it's never been frozen. Second thing is I leave it in my case for a couple of days. If it doesn't sell, I pull it out and I brine it and I put it and turn it into smoked salmon. And then, and then I fill the case with new fresh fish. So what happens is the case, the fish in my case is super fresh and it stays super fresh because I'm pulling and rotating that out because I also need the smoked salmon you know, I need the weight in smoked salmon. So by rotating that cycle through and turning it into smoked salmon, it keeps the fresh fish fresh and then utilizes that, you know, seconds or what would be shrink for a grocery store, what they throw away. And I turn it into another product that I actually just sell and I don't lose any money. So I have a real problem throwing food away. Yeah, I would imagine so. And how did Providor, how did your relationship with Providor come about? And was that something, obviously, had to excite you because you did it. 
Yeah. Uh, but that's a little different than being out on Hawthorne. Yeah, it was. You know, at Hawthorne, it, it created, you know, it was this entrepreneurial era of flying fish and me and, and I was doing all these farmers markets and I was doing Hawthorne and then I started wholesale and I was selling to the restaurants and I spread so thin all over the place, but it also got my name out there and it got my reputation up and got me in the restaurant world and it got me in the consumer world. And with that reputation, I, I got into the, you know, brains of, of pasta works. And then they, they came and approached me about this new venture that they had, which was, is now Provador. And so they invited me to a uh, flying fish company to do the fish. And out of that, I, I've also sold local pasture raised meats over the years as kind of a secondary thing outside of the fish, just to get some extra revenue, uh, working with local grass fed beef and lamb and pasture raised pork and pasture raised chicken and stuff. So out of the invite, I also decided to take on the meat program there. So I created a little sub sub brand called the meat mongers. I didn't know that. Yeah. And then, and then we, out of the, the space, after I committed and said, yes, I was interested in doing that project, um, the, I de- developed the oyster bar idea. So now we've got a little restaurant along with the meats where we do the fresh patch raised meats. We make our own sausages and then I do the sustainable seafood. So I've got my own little corner at Provador. That's nice. Yeah. And there's nobody, is there anybody else doing something like you're doing there? No, no. So I'm the exclusive. So we've all got our own category. There's three right, businesses. Right, I just meant yeah. in category. Categorically, there's not, a, there's not a produce person that they've contracted with. They're yeah, doing- Produce, Josh uh, owns Rubinette Produce uh, okay. over there. So there he, Pasta Works does, they're the anchor tenant. They do about 70% of everything. They do charcuterie, the cheese um, case. They do all the dry goods. They've got the wine room. That's Pasta Works. And they've got an amazing chef, uh, Chef Derek McCarthy, that does the Arosto, the chicken rotisserie. Because that's pretty yeah. good. How's it's that amazing. doing? Yeah, they're great. Yeah. And then they've got some deli case items that, that Chef does as well. So they're doing a great job with that. They're the anchor tenant. Then the subleases are myself, Flying Fish Company, who does the fish, the meat, and the oyster bar, and then Rubinette Produce, Josh, who does um, all amazing. He's doing a really, really great job sourcing great local produce that's unique and different than the normal stuff and, and doing a really good job. Same kind of model as what I work with, working with a bunch of small little guys, little farms. Um, I work with little fishermen and he's doing the little farms and they're bringing in their four boxes of apples and their, you know, boxes of veggies and really nice stuff. Is there... Um a fish, an Oregon fisherman that you can cite that is particularly interesting and doing some great stuff who makes you happy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, I mean, uh, one of my guys, one of my favorite guys are Trey Finn Foods, and they're just across the border in Ilwaco, Washington, right across from Astoria there. They're my day boat tuna guys, so they take me out fishing with them. And in the summer times, the local albacore tuna are located about 40 miles off the Oregon coast during June or July, August, September, basically. So we, they are out and back in the same day. So it's kind of a sport boat, but it's used commercially. You can catch about 200 fish on it in, in a day is, is the most, which is a big day for tuna, for a small bo- tuna boat. So hook and line, day boat, so out and back in the same day. It also matters with tuna and sushi quality products, it matters how you handle the fish. So after you catch them, you cut their gills so that they bleed all the blood out of their flesh so you don't end up with a filet that has a bunch of blood in it. Um, you also um, um, make sure that they, they get bonked so that they die right away so that they're not bruising themselves by beating themselves up on the deck and flopping around because that affects the flesh and the, the texture and everything. Well, I remember um, going back to my fish market in Guilford, yeah. Connecticut. They sold different uh, types of har- swordfish, and mm-hmm. the one that was the best was harpooned because yes. they weren't swimming around That's right. or flailing around. They were just, Doom, it's yep. over with. Yep. And uh, Single that's, line. Uh, can yep. you get any of that? <clears throat> you know. Would you please? <laughs> and would you get some cherry stone clams? Yeah, yeah, I can. I can get that stuff for you. You betcha. Well, get it yeah. for the people who can make pizza. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, for the clam pizza? Yeah, ah. for clam pizza. I, the manilas don't do anything for no. me, and they're not no. so... Uh, it would be great. Yeah, so, yeah, you can do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All special right. orders all day long. All right. Well, I'll <laughs> figure out how to get in the get on the on the end 
on the end of that. Yeah, the- you guys can sign up for my email. I send out a once a week fresh fish email. Uh, you can go to it on Oregon or um, flyingfishcompany.com on the website. You can sign up. It's a constant contact email that goes out that's really well done. We send out what what's fresh each week, you know, what kind of local meats we have in, our sausages, uh, what's going on at the oyster bar, and also talks about sustainability and just regional stuff of what we're doing with policy and, and, and the work that we do. So it's a really good way to, to get, stay in touch with us and get stay abreast with the topics, these food, these these really important topics in seafood and, and, and meats and sustainability. So just to make sure I get this in, because I have a couple other things I want to ask you, yeah. but I think <clears throat> the big question is, you know, we had when Damien uh, Magista was, was oh, involved, yeah. you know, when, when Be Local was his deal, he came in and he talked about all the, the shit that was going on with bees and what we should be concerned about. But the final question was, do you, are you are you optimistic? Are we going to get out of this? Is it, are we going to have a population? How are you? How do you feel overall that your grandchildren uh, will do? Will they be able to enjoy the seafood we enjoy? Maybe not necessarily the same varieties, but will they be able to enjoy them? That's a good question. Thank you for for bringing that up because um, you did mention something similar earlier, and I'm I'm glad you brought it back up because I do deep down I have doubts about humans. We are continue to to take advantage of our of our earth, and we continue to treat our earth in a way that is, in my opinion, not sustainable. So I that's part of my drive is that I feel so guilty about how we're treating it and how we disrespect it. So there's part of me that that does have doubt, and that's real, and that's me being honest with you. And I will also I have to point out we're an audio medium here. You had your eyes closed the whole time you were saying that. So, and what I could see was it was heartfelt. You were just almost in a trance state when you were talking about that. Yep. So it's important to you. You can see it's it. It is really important. I mean, this is this is exactly what I do, and these are the the things that I think about a lot because it's really my business model. And I'm not not just greenwashing people by saying sustainability and saying that this and that, and just doing these things just to get more promotion and getting you know more recognition. That's a good point. Uh, this is really important. So to 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 finish that, what I really believe in, I really believe that we as humans have an intrinsic problem with limiting ourselves with what we take. I do believe that we need, that we, we are smart and I do believe that we can learn from our mistakes. I think that we just need to make sure that we keep getting reminded of the things that we did coming from your land on the East coast. We made a lot of mistakes on the East coast. We have created frameworks in our fisheries policy. We created the exclusive economic zone, which means that boats can't fish within 200 miles of our coast, like foreign boats, because these old, these foreign vessels used to can't come into the Cape Cod and those things. They just wiped it all out. And those, those East coast, um, cod stocks and stuff they've tried to recover them and tried to recover them and they're not recovering because there's not enough adult species there to recover so we have we had a problem we did fix some of the problem and push these boats off of the coast but it was too late so we've got to learn from that mistake and the atlantic salmon used to be wild salmon on the east coast and now those are extinct they're not there anymore so we need to learn from those mistakes here on the west coast we do have amazing fisheries. We had the lingcod fishery, the petrolley fishery, petrolley sole, and then the rockfish, um, several species of rockfish that were basically endangered on the overfish list. We had rebuilding programs that were 10-year rebuilding programs. We set up these frameworks of areas that you could fish and couldn't fish to, so that the adults could spawn and create more stocks of those. And those species have rebuilt themselves in half that 10 years. And they're already back at more sustainable levels where we've been able to allow more fishing to happen. So we, again, had a problem. We recognize the problem. We create framework to fix the problem through fisheries policy and through you know the 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 state troopers making sure that we're doing the doing the work and the work can be done and it is possible so i absolutely believe that we can have fish for my kids for your kids for our grandchildren when those days come uh, that's nationally i do believe that we have issues internationally with these highly migratory species like tuna that go from one country to the next and um really creating framework that you know, once you get out into the high seas where there's no governing body, that's a big problem. 
and and there is still a lot of work that needs to get done. We need to continue to ask more questions, um, put more pressure on this illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing framework that we have that Obama put into place. So I do believe that with work, it can be saved. Is that going away? What I, because it seems like everything Obama put in place, this guy wants to take it away. Yeah, it has been. I, I do quite a bit of work with fisheries policy, and right now we're uh, renewing our national fishery policy called the Magnuson-Stevens Act, and it is a shit show. It is an absolute shit show. The things that are happening with the national monuments, with marine protected areas, um, with fisheries policy, allowing more flexibility and just basically disregarding things like total allowable catch, these scientific-based catch limits that they say, oh, you know what, this year we didn't get any recreational fishing time in, so we're going to go ahead and allow that for another 30 days because that's a big industry and those guys pay us a lot of money, so we're going to go ahead and allow that. That's bullshit, mm-hmm. and that needs to stop. And and we need to follow science. We need to make these decisions and, and, and stay firm on them because hard decisions are hard. It's hard to swallow that. Yes, we don't have a recreational season this year. That's hard. Tough shit. Yeah, so do we have... Um is there the uh, the room to fuck this up for a few years and then get it back? <laughs> it makes it, you know, I've, I've, I'm, I'm learning a lot in this last year of what's been happening because it's just like from one president to the next, they can just fuck the last guy over and just reverse everything that the last guy did and then the next guy can do the same to this guy. And, and you know, I... I, I, I also have my doubts <laughs> in policy in general, although I do work with fisheries policy and the Marine Fish Conservation Network and that, and just we're just got to keep on fighting. And, and I think with the population and that, are we just if we fight hard enough, I do think that we can continue to, to, to protect it and to work hard at it and, and, and save it. Well, cool. Yeah. So events like Shuck help do that. That's right. And you've got, I'm sure that's not the only thing you're doing. It's just no. an event. So you... <laughs> So I would suggest that people get on your flying fish mailing list, see what's going on. Thanks. Hear what's going on, stay in touch with you. I've been, uh, as I always say on this podcast, I've been guilty of not being down to visit you near enough. I won't say never, but... (laughs) I appreciate uh, all the support I can get. (laughs) But um, get down there more often. But uh, to to end on a lighter note, and I don't know if I'm putting you on the spot, but I'm um, an avid lover of fish and chips. Yes. And so I, you know, I have my favorites on the coast that I'm generally always um, advocating there. And one of them, do you want? We can take. <laughs> uh, one of them is down in um, in South Beach, South Beach Fish Market. Have you been down there? Ah, uh, South Beach. No. Oh, can we go sometime? Can sure. I take you to see yeah. what you think? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so there's that. But do you have any in Portland? Places to, maybe not necessarily fish and chips, but yes, fish and chips that you particularly love, that you recommend. You know, funny that you asked that. I just actually went out a couple nights ago with a couple buddies, and we went down to the uh, Toffee Club, and they had a great fish and chips. I've never heard of it. It was right down here on Hawthorne in Southeast, uh, Southeast, let's see, that is 11th, 10th maybe ninth, uh, Southeast ninth and Hawthorne and Toffee Club. They did a really good job. It was, it was damn good fish and chips. Nice. So, yep. Yeah. That was, that was the best one uh, that I think I've had so far in Portland by far. There's not a lot of fish and chips around. No. It's and there, you know what? I'm now trying to rack my brain thinking, where do I like to go in Portland? And I know there are some, but nothing that is that outstanding to me that it's no. coming to mind right now. No. There's some good fish and chips. I just had a great... If you have this completely off topic, but think of fried food, Burger Stevens uh, fried chicken sandwich down at the new food carts in Pioneer Square. No. Oh my God. Oh you got to do that. Yeah. That's a suggestion I yeah, make yeah. to you. You just gave me that suggestion. I'll pay you back with that. Thank you so much. Thank Lee. you I so much. I appreciate it. Really my, appreciate my pleasure. I'm glad we were able to put this together. It was quick. Cheers. Starting this morning. <laughs> Bam. Right at the Fork is hosted and produced by Chris Angeles and Court Johnson. Connect with us on Twitter and Instagram at Food Podcast PDX or on Facebook at Right at the Fork or online at rightatthefork.com. Right